episode three, RV8. Um, still no sponsors, so more shout-outs. I'd actually like to give a shout-out to the people who were there with me at RV8, which is the namesake of this podcast. I, I would like to thank Bill Woods, John Gilbert, Christian Snook, uh, Xavier Upshaw, anybody else that I may have missed that were with me during those years. And uh, thank you for still being friends to this day. Um, thank you for joining. My name is Eli Brumfield. Let's get started. And here we go. So we're here in L.A., it's now mid-August. We're smack down, smack dab in the middle of a pandemic. And, yeah, things are pretty much still the same as far as the state of cinema. And, I mean, other places are reopening, but in L.A., I guess we're, we're ground zero. Like, we're the worst place on Earth. So it's never really going to come here, it feels. It just feels like we're going to watch everybody have fun. These goddamn tenant advertisements. I'm starting to see trailers on TV. Like, how dare they? You know what I mean? I've been trying to not drink myself into a depression because of what the state of cinema is. So I'm going to maintain optimism throughout this pod to try and try and pretend like things aren't going on. It's the reason why it's a retrospective. And I was thinking a lot about what I wanted this episode to be. And I just started thinking of all the mistakes that have gone on during this decade, but some also of my own. I mean, in my history of being a cinephile, I've made a lot of egregious mistakes, a lot of of really, really bad cold takes that I thought were hot at the time. Really thoroughly embarrassing ones, like ones so embarrassing that I actually thank the Lord above that there was no social media for me to be bold enough to document these cold takes, man. I, th- I thought once upon a time that Superman Returns was going to be one of the top five highest grossing movies of all time. I was really bold in that one. I once thought that going from Beyonce to Lady Gaga and The Star is Born was going to just completely tank the movie. I, I thought that, uh, what was another one? I thought that J.J. Abrams was a complete hack because of Cloverfield and that he was just going to be one of the worst directors around. And then Star Wars came along, and that was my favorite movie of that year. That didn't feel too good. I, I, I said that Captain America was too boring of a superhero to be filmed on screen. I was actually against him being in the Avengers movie, even though it made no sense. I, I thought that Daniel Craig <laughs> was going to be a horrible James Bond, because I thought that going from Pierce Brosnan to Daniel Craig was a, a really bad mistake. Worst, the worst of my egregious cold takes had to be that I thought, you know, getting the man who starred in The Knight's Tale and 10 Things I Hate About You and Brokeback Mountain was a flat-out reckless and possibly franchise-destroying choice to play such an iconic role as the Joker. (laughs) I like... Many others who wouldn't admit it at the time 
thought that what Jack Nicholson did in 1989 was untouchable and that Heath Ledger would never be able to match what he did in that film. And then, you know, The Dark Knight came out and that trailer hit. And it, the trailer wasn't really him on screen. It was just the laugh and the voice. And I was just like, ooh. And then the prologue came out. I believe it was on I Am Legend in 2007. And for those of you who don't remember what that IMAX prologue was, all it was was the beginning scene of the film, the bank heist, where nobody's talking and everybody's wearing Joker masks. And... They don't show his face for five minutes, but then they do. And holy shit. Look at you. What do you believe in, huh? What do you believe in? I believe whatever doesn't kill you simply makes you stranger. I don't think I've ever been more wrong given all that I've just told you about my predictions ever in the history of my life. The smeared makeup, the lip smacking, the fucking snarl in his voice, the, the overall sense of menace surrounding that character. I mean, just his body language was just playful like it was in Batman the Animated Series. It was really magnificent shit. And unfortunately, one month and one week, after that IMAX trailer played in front of I Am Legend, Heath Ledger overdosed, passed away. Not too long after the movie's release, it was overwhelmingly decided that Nicholson's Joker was a clear silver medal to what Ledger put on. I mean, some would say that along with Johnny Depp's performance in Pirates of the Caribbean, that Heath Ledger's Joker is probably the only iconic movie performance throughout the 2000s and i wouldn't say they're wrong i remember some time after dark knight people thought ledger only got the recognition because he died and it goes to show that in the year of 2019 joaquin phoenix played the same exact role he won the oscar for it too it was completely deserved and the competition for him to win the Oscar against it wasn't even really close like we all knew he was going to win it he won every award actually underneath the sun and I still don't think I've met a person that would say that he was a better Joker than Heath Ledger and so a question kind of lingers here for me what if Ledger were alive today what would it look like if Heath Ledger fresh off of the praise and adoration from his performance and his Oscar win and his Globe win jumped right into that tentpole-driven 3D cinematic universe type era that we're living in. I mean, one would think that his open disdain for superstardom would show. He just was really serious about his craft. One thing is for sure about Heath Ledger, though. He would have been what I refer to as... <laughs> The guy. The guy is what I personally refer to when the powers that be in this city tell you, tell you that someone is the biggest star in the whole universe. But when you break it down, what does it really mean when you are the guy? What will you have? And from what I can tell, 
you being the guy means the following. A. You are deemed to be the biggest box office draw imaginable. Seeing your name on the marquee is supposed to bring people to screens no matter what director or co-star or even plot. It doesn't matter. It should be you. B. You are good looking. I mean, the old adage of having matinee idol looks apply here. I don't really feel that needs to be explained any further. C. You are safe when it comes to the press. You're not going to go in front of the press and start spouting political opinions or controversial theories about whatever the fuck. You are essentially the equivalent of an NFL quarterback at a press conference whenever you're in public. D. You only do big movies. Event movies. That usually come out in the summer and cost nine figures to make at the very least. Maybe even ten if that can be possible. And, you know, if you're actually a good actor, which is a gray area for some of these guys, you actually get a chance to do Oscar-nominated stuff every now and again. They'll let you do your Born on the Fourth of July. They'll let you do your American Hustle. You know what I mean? E, and this is really unfortunate, but it's reality. You're also a man. You have to be a man. There still is, sadly, this common belief that women cannot bring in box office like men do. The, the marketing behind pushing, pushing an actress to a, a high position is nowhere near the same as a man. It never has been, and it possibly will never be. And that's pretty much it. What does it take to be the guy? I like to talk about something I refer to as the anointing moment. One simply does not do a film and instantaneously bloom into the guy. There are indeed procedures to follow. First thing that has to happen is that you have to have a moment on screen that is so impactful and on brand with what you're presenting as a movie star, whether it be good looks, humor, charisma, sex appeal, uh, uh, overt masculinity, or, or something else that I'm not thinking of. That makes fans and the media go, you know, think of, think of Al Pacino during the baptism scene in that first Godfather movie, for example, or when Gene Hackman started interrogating all them people in that bar in the French connection or, or when Peter Finch, uh, got mad as hell and network, you know, that scene. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. Whoever the guy is will have to, and I repeat, have to, have a moment that is at the very least approaching the level of those iconic scenes. Then, once that happens, that same actor needs to have a hit that is squarely dependent on his star power. Something that shows up at the end of the year box office almost entirely, if not completely because of him and that's about it i mean as far as the criteria is concerned it's only two steps but it's one of the hardest things if not the hardest thing to do in terms of taking one's career to the next stratosphere and i tend to believe that hollywood was not designed for there to be one overarching movie star at least not in the 1970s and before i mean there are plenty and i mean plenty of legends that are currently working in their 60s and 70s that made the greatest work of their careers during the golden age of cinema, the 
70s, man, were crowded with talent. And somehow they all tended to blend with one another when it came to the upper echelon. Beatty was no bigger than Nicholson. Nicholson was no bigger than Redford. Redford was no bigger than Brando. Also notable, there was really no such thing as a tentpole back then. And there certainly wasn't the idea of franchising a blockbuster film. I do believe that there's only been three men to take the moniker of The Guy since 1977. There have been many others who've lasted the test of time and who's had their career ebbs and flows. But the distinction of being The Guy tends to come with consistent, mega, tentpole-type movies And only three men in the span of 30 years had a string of mega-level films that went uninterrupted by any other star. I mean, yeah, other people had hits, but not, like, their hits. You know what I mean? Anyways, 1977 happens, right? And, And Star Wars happens. The legacy of Star Wars has been discussed at such lengths by so many people greater than me that I choose not to speak of its importance. I'm probably going to cover my relationship to this franchise in a different episode. However, the point I want to make about this franchise at this moment is that it's here where movie stardom can be sold on truly a grand scale to the widest possible demographic. I wasn't born in 1977. I have no idea what kind of rock star status Mark Hamill had or Carrie Fisher or Harrison Ford had when it came to that movie. But the word epic comes to mind. And I think it was here where movie stardom could be accelerated on perhaps a grander scale than what Nicholson or Beatty or Redford was back then. I mean, it wasn't until three years after episode four, Star Wars episode four, where we truly began what to see what that actually looked like. The Empire Strikes Back was released in 1980. And with all due respect to both the living and the dead, it has been proven that of the three actors previously mentioned from that first film, Harrison Ford was the bigger star, and I don't think that's arguable. And I can only believe that's because of his anointing moment, which happened in The Empire Strikes Back. You want your badasses to be a badass to yeah. the end. You right, want them right, to right. go down uh, the, way they, the way they lived. So I, I, I said... Um, I mean, what's the last thing uh, a woman wants to hear when she says, I love you? <laughs> she says, I love you. And I say, I know. That seems perfect for what the guy encapsulates. And it captures the kind of swag that Fort brought to Indiana Jones the following year, 1981. Raiders of the Lost Ark was a movie that can only star a guy who was already a bona fide movie star. Harrison Ford's run throughout the 1980s wasn't just defined by Indiana Jones and Star Wars. There was also Blade Runner, which is equally as important to his legacy as anything else previously mentioned. And at the tail end of his run in 1985, he actually got an Oscar nomination for a movie, a really underrated movie, by the name of Witness. 86 was the year that Harrison Ford's run as the guy officially had an expiration date from 1980 to 1986 that was his run because in 1986 a movie called top gun was released and the head of that movie was a man named tom cruise hey mavericks yeah 
You hear about ice? What's that? You want another one? Really? Yeah. I feel the need. The need for speed. Ow! For the record, I am not a Scientologist. I am, though, a colossal fan of this man. And it seems as if you can't pay this man any type of credit for any lengthy period of time without Scientology bashing coming hither and yon. He is undoubtedly one of the greatest movie stars of our time, and he's proven that on a consistent basis. Based off of the previously mentioned criteria of what it does take to become the guy, I can only imagine that the vast majority of film consumers saw Top Gun in 1986 and indeed knew that he was built for uh, the that guy life. You, you know what I'm saying? My personal journey to becoming a cinephile was at the peak of this man's fame. And once I started studying up on Tom Cruise, I saw that his resume before Top Gun was kind of lackluster in comparison to the films that he was doing at the time. Films like All the Right Moves and Cocktail and The Outsiders, I mean, those are decent enough, but to anybody who knows anything about this man, we all know what this what what his anointing moment was, right? Like we all know what film that came in. It is indeed very hard for me to imagine Risky Business coming out three years before Top Gun and people being drawn to it like they say they were today. It's a movie that seems to be designed for only one demographic and nothing else. (laughs) But even still, Tom Cruise, you know, in his chonas singing that Bob Seger record does indeed qualify as his anointing moment. I'm pretty sure straight men didn't know that yet. And, you know, women more than likely did, but it still counts. And again, no disrespect to anybody, but it's even clearer now to see that Tom Cruise had something that none of those other teen heartthrobs of the 80s had. Oh, and there were so many heartthrobs in the 1980s. So many different actors put on the cover of these magazines trying to sell the same fucking image that Cruise was selling. The, the Matt Dillons and the John Cusacks, the the Rob Lowe's and the Charlie Sheen's, um, Corey Haim, uh, Emilio Estevez, Andrew McCarthy was big at that time. I mean, all of them were selling the same kind of thing and Cruz's star had a bit more shine. And I mean, I'll include Patrick Swayze and Johnny Depp. Those were 80s idols. I mean, later icons, but they didn't have what Cruz had. At least Depp didn't at the time. Seems these days we're so used to Tom Cruise being around that we believe his reign as the guy lasted a lot longer than it did. But it really was only a decade. From 1986 until 1996. That's it. One decade of Cruise being the undisputed king of the game. In that time, he had the following hits. Rain Man, Born on the Fourth of July, Days of Thunder, Interview with the Vampire, The Firm, Jerry Maguire, A Few Good Men, and Mission Impossible. And that's it. And it doesn't seem like that much because he's had way bigger hits than any of those since his unopposed run. There's been the Minority Reports and the War of the Worlds. There's been 
like things like Collateral and Mission Impossible sequels here and there, but they were scattered. He's still one of the more colossal movie stars on the planet, but he was unopposed for a decade. And don't get me wrong, in 1996, his run was over definitively. By 1996, it had become apparent to anyone who would pay attention that a lot of the big movie stars of that era got their footing on TV shows. From Denzel Washington in St. Elsewhere, to Robin Williams on Mork and Mindy, to Tom Hanks on Bosom Buddies, Jim Carrey Living Color, Bruce Willis in Moonlighting, there was a good chance that whoever you liked that was going to take the mantle from Cruise had already proven their star power in another medium. And by 1996, Will Smith had already established himself as a TV star and a legendary rapper, to be fair. Bad Boys had come out the year before, and, you know, people responded to it well. It was an R-rated Michael Bay movie. And the idea of him being in a movie like something like Independence Day wasn't too shocking. People just gradually accepted it. I say all this to say that this movie was a big deal, Will Smith nonwithstanding. And by the time of its release, it was just too big to fail, whether he ended up a star or not. It was such a big deal that as a 13-year-old boy, I snuck into the now extinct Kent Six Cinemas in Kent, Washington, watching this movie from the back row, hoping not to get caught. And in this movie, I'm watching Will Smith chase this alien craft in a fighter plane. Will Smith outmaneuvers it. He makes the alien craft crash. Smith parachutes from his airplane, lands on the ground, and begins trash-talking the alien in only a way that Will Smith can. Ah! That's right! That's right! Get up! Get up! That's what you get! <laughs> Look at you! Ship all banged up! Who's the man? Huh? Who's the man? Wait till I get another plane! I'm lining all your friends up right beside you! And then he walks over to the alien craft, opens it, and then something happens. Welcome to Earth. By the way, he says the TH. I feel that's important to note. As much as I want to believe he said welcome to Earth with E-A-R-F as the memes tell you he said it, he really does say the TH and you can hear it. The E-A-R-F word is sadly not true. Anyway, I'm telling you right now that seeing that moment in a movie theater, that whole auditorium went. He then sat on the edge of the alien ship, lit up a cigar, informing the audience that he just experienced a close encounter. And just like that, you saw the anointing of the man that would be the king of Hollywood for the next 10 fucking years. Independence Day, Men in Black, Enemy of the State, Wild Wild West, Bad Boys 2, Shark Tale, iRobot, Pursuit of Happiness, Hitch, Hancock, I Am Legend, and Men in Black 2. That's his run. In a decade. A colossal run, to say the very least. It is to say that this earning power of Will Smith could have continued much further along, but after seven pounds in 2008, 
believe it or not, Will Smith didn't make another movie for four years, four whole years, damn near half a decade without him making a single solitary thing. And as far as being the guy is concerned, I mean, he just relinquished it. There was all of a sudden this void. And that's such a shame, too, because we had a scud missile of an anointing moment in the summer of 2008. Those mob fools want you gone so they can get back to the way things were. But I know the truth. There's no going back. You've changed things forever. And why do you want to kill me? <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to kill you. What would I do without you? Go back to ripping off mob dealers? No, 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 you, you complete me. One would think that to live up to the size of Will Smith's stature, that you would have to have a large number of qualifications. But given the history of people who have been forced down our throats since Will Smith took his hiatus, that list of criteria seems to be rather short, man. <laughs> I mean, a lot of people don't believe me on this tip, so here's what I'll do. I'm going to name some names, and you try and find the similarities in the following actors. Taylor Kitsch is the most notable, unfortunately. He was fresh off of Friday Night Lights, and he played a heartthrob, and he took off his shirt a lot, and everybody went crazy. And as a result of that, he had probably the biggest push of any movie star with limited experience that I can think of in 2012. That's when it happened. You, you saw John Carter in the spring, you saw Battleship in the summer, and they both performed below expectation. In 2010, Taylor Lautner was the highest paid teen actor in Hollywood. Fresh off of Twilight, he was supposed to be uh, a big budget Stretch Armstrong Christmas release, and that didn't end up happening. And before Twilight was even over, he was given his own potential action franchise with John Singleton called Abduction. And yeah, don't see that movie, by the way. From 2013 to 2015, we had Charlie Hunnam and Aaron Taylor Johnson, both of which who were doing blockbuster after blockbuster. Hunnam was coming right after Sons of Anarchy, and he had Pacific Rim completed, and that seemed to have massive franchise potential. Crimson Peak was the year after Sons of Anarchy was over, and then he was announced as King Arthur. Aaron Taylor Johnson, in that same time, had kick-ass movies, the kick-ass movies. He was beginning his run as Quicksilver in The Winter Soldier. He, he's with Taylor Kitsch in the Oliver Stone movie Savages, and he starred in the 2014 Godzilla movie, and then he played Quicksilver in Age of Ultron, and he was being pushed as the guy. Those are just a couple of examples there have been more examples. Guys like Shia LaBeouf, Sam Worthington, Zac Efron, Channing Tatum. I mean, all these men are bonafide superstars, and nobody can deny that, but they weren't what they were being advertised or pushed to be. And that's not even mentioning the men before them who were pushed in the early 2000s during Will Smith's heyday. Guys like Brandon Ruth and Josh Hartnett and Hayden Christensen, like all pretty decent actors, but... None of them had the anointing moment that led to the eventual crowning of them being king. At least one that didn't feel forced. So that's 11 different examples. Anybody see the similarities yet? Well, in case you don't, here are all the things 
that those 11 different examples have in common. A. All of them were young, or at least young enough to portray a person in their early to mid-20s on screen at the time of their push. B. All of them are very good-looking individuals to the point where none of them realistically look good. Like, they look as if they are wearing makeup and they have a hairstylist. And three, all of them are Caucasian. All of them. And yeah, that's it. <clears throat> that's, that's, that's the whole list of commonalities. One of the age-old questions in show business, I mean, no matter what the medium is, what is the it factor? And I think, unfortunately, that's always been attributed to aesthetics. The reason why it's been so hard to pinpoint what the it factor is, is because you know when you know. The biggest movie star in the world right now is clearly Dwayne Johnson, The Rock, for those who don't know his real name yet. And it's really not even a conversation that he is the biggest star in the world at this point. The man has amassed a resume unlike any of his peers. He checks all the boxes. But ask yourself, is there really an iconic cinematic moment of Dwayne Johnson? Is there a I'll be back? Is there a yippee Kaye motherfucker? Is there a go ahead punk make my day moment from Dwayne The Rock Johnson? I mean, he's justifiably gained the title of being the guy, but that's just through sheer gumption, efficiency, and reliability, right? Are we living in a time where that's what it takes or not? A lot of things about this business are already changing radically, but it mostly has to do with the business side of things. I perhaps operating on blind fucking faith believe that the art of cinema will not necessarily be touched by what's going on right now. And by that, I mean, like, I mean, you know, don't ask me why, but I think when films do come back, tentpole level shit is still going to look like tentpole level shit. CGI is still going to be everywhere. There's still going to be a orchestra score, like reminiscent of John Williams and billboards in this city, at least, are still going to litter all over the place with whatever big time movie is about to open. The reality is this. Will Smith, Clooney, Cruz, Denzel, Brad Pitt, guys like that, all still major stars, all colossal talents, of course. But they're in their 50s or older. Guys like Matt Damon and Ben Affleck are almost there more recent inductees to the A-list like Pratt and Gyllenhaal and Reynolds and Gosling and Idris Elba, Chris Evans, all of those guys are either 40 or going to be in their mid-40s. Smack dab in the middle of everything being on hiatus. And it's worth stating that as optimistic as I am that things are going to pick up, it's the star power that's going to have to get this business moving again. I think over the past decade, we've been relying on the film's title being bigger than the star itself. And I don't know if the 
business has been built upon that for the past 30 years. Everybody has their guy. Everybody has their collection of stars that they'll follow no matter wherever they go. And we got a good, we got a good roster of stars right now. A good roster. But they're getting older. Who's next? I don't know. I know that I promised that this podcast would be a lot more optimistic after that first episode and all the doom and gloom that I brought. Uh, we're still getting the negative stuff out of our system, if, if, I, if I must be honest. There will be best ofs probably within the next episode, but maybe not, because there's also going to be worst ofs. And negativity m might not be out of my system yet. <laughs> I want to thank uh, the people here at Third Wheel. I'd like to thank the engineer, Rashad, for coming through, being clutch as he's been. Uh, thank you for giving us a chance, and I'll see you in the next episode.